and uh, let's think about what we've just sung. Oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He's the redeemer of my ruined life. What a beautiful remembrance of the brokenness that we have without Christ and the rescue that we have in Christ. This morning, we're going to be looking at several different passages as we continue our series, Healthy Church. If you don't have a sermon outline, please lift your hand, and these fine gentlemen that are coming will be glad to give one to you. If you're joining us online, you can go to our website and download and print out a PDF so that you can follow along, and I want to recommend for you to do that. This morning, our message is a continuance of this series, Healthy Church me and us. Let's say that out loud together. The series name is what? Healthy Church, Me and Us. You know, we would be tempted in doing a series on Healthy Church for you to think, oh, this is just about the church in general. It doesn't really apply to me. (laughs) Well, I hope you don't believe that. That may indicate that you're not part of the church. That may indicate that that you're not a Christian. You see, Christians are named with God's people. We see in the Old Testament Christians or or God's people named together and God dealing with them together. We see in the New Testament God's people named together. And so he doesn't just deal with you, but he deals with you and he deals with us. And that's a very, very important concept for us. So we've been looking at this and very quickly notice there, um, not only me and us, but What is a healthy church? It is moving toward maturity. It's you in your personal life moving toward maturity, and it's us as a church moving toward maturity. And it has to do with God at work in us and our obedience and following after him. We not only looked at moving toward and encouraging one another, but we want to encourage one another as we gather. And that's what Hebrews chapter 10 says, that when you show up, it's encouraging to others. When you're absent, it is discouraging to others, whether we even realize the individuals or not. Sometimes um, someone thinks of you and says, man, where is Ted this morning? It wasn't the same without Ted or Robin here or the others that are around us. It's important that we gather together just even by being together, we encourage one another, we're encouraged in the word, we're encouraged in song, we're encouraged in fellowship. Not only that, but we also see that a healthy church understands that we're not like the world. We're not in the world, we're not, we're not, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. So when we look at a fallen world who has very different values and very, very different priorities, A healthy church is a church that recognizes that we are separate from the world when it comes to having very, very, that we are called to be set apart, that we are called to be a holy people. This morning, I have a very interesting title for you, and uh, we're going to be looking at healthy family, or healthy healthy church fighting families. Um, uh, Now, I, I want to explain that title a little bit. But before I do, let me just remind you, this morning, like most of these messages, um, we're, we're, this is a topical series. This is a series where we're looking at different subjects, so we're not preaching through a book of the Bible. And in fact, this morning, it's not going to be very expository, 
but we will be, we'll be, we're going to be doing a little bit more of a Bible study that runs from passage to passage looking at this topic. So it's a little bit different than we normally do. Second thing I want to recognize is that this message this morning is intended to bring home our series, to bring our series home to you. In fact, quite, quite literally to your house, to your home, to your life, to your family. So as we look at healthy church and as we look at me and us of healthy church, we're going to be looking at how does a healthy church move forward in regard to its families and the fact that families are very important. So there's individual application for you and there's application for us as a church. I want to also say this, that for those of you who are single in this place, whether young, middle-aged, or older singles, this message very much applies to you. And this, especially for those who maybe someday hope to be married. So middle schoolers and high schoolers that are here this morning, this is an incredibly important message for you to realize not only what's going on in your family right now in the way that it should be, but to also be thinking about someday when you are no longer an adolescent, when someday when you're no longer a teenager, but someday when you are in the position of being married and seeking to have a family. It's very, very important for us. Um, I wanna just say as well, as we launch into this message this morning, that the world doesn't understand what we're talking about this morning. It simply doesn't. It has a few hints here and there. It has a few things that it likes about this, but it has much that it doesn't like about this. In fact, the spirit of the age is to reject the family. I saw a clip this week of a very popular television program, and there's two high school seniors that are kind of dating each other a little bit or whatever, and in the course of their conversation, one of them says, yeah, nuclear family, uh, rolls her eyes and says, you've got to be kidding. So, all along, as we move through society, as we move through the culture, we see uh, an increasing rejection, even an attack on the Genesis 1 through 11 plan of God. That he is our creator God, that he has made us male and female, he has given us marriage, he has told us to go um, to to multiply, to subdue the earth, to fill the earth and to subdue it. This is his grand and glorious plan. And we see a world that is rejecting all of those most basic instructions, most basic design. We see a world that is not only rejecting the specifics of those things, but we see a world that is now completely and totally deluded in their thinking. Come, I mean, we, we, we can use the word insanity. We can, we can use the word crazed. We can use the words completely irrational when it comes to the world's understanding of what we're talking about this morning. And so um, I just want you to really think about that picture that God has a plan that he began early in the scripture, in fact, in the first chapter of the Bible, um, to begin to show us that glorious plan, that most basic plan 
which is so, so visibly under attack. Even when we go to the issue not just of gender and uh, marriage and all of the picture of his, his design of nuclear family that is clearly seen in Genesis 1 and 2 in the most basic building blocks of humanity, but we also see it when he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Satan's great hostile plan against that is to convince the world that we're overpopulated, to convince the world that children are a problem, to convince the world that we can live however we want, and regardless of the, uh, the consequences of our sexual morality, that when children are conceived, they are disposable if you don't want them. You see, all of this is, is Satan's attack on the truth of Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. And if you don't know why I say that, go read Genesis 1 through 11 this afternoon, and you'll begin to see this is what we see happening in the world. So Christians are to think differently. Christians are to be led by Scripture. We are to, to think Christianly about this, and this morning, my hope is to remind us of a few of these basic truths. So when we look at the title of this message, it's kind of interesting, Healthy Church Fighting Families, I thought, hmm, what does that really mean to folks? I want, let's look at this for a minute. What this message title doesn't mean. So let's first of all look at what this message title doesn't mean, and you can fill this in, that Christian families fight against one another. You say, well, wait a minute, I thought I have a Christian family and we fight with each other, so that's what he must be talking about. We're finally being commended for our fighting in our house. No, no, no. The Christian family, it, it doesn't mean that we're to fight against one another. And surprising to some of you, I'm going to say this as well, the Christian family, what we don't mean by this is that Christian families fight a culture war. That's very popular in this day and time. Very popular to reduce Christianity down to trying to change a culture or trying to hold on to a culture um, and, and to back up a culture that is running headlong um, into actually the things that God has prophesied would happen. Um, we are not called to go and fight a culture war and by political power to force a biblical morality upon a culture that hates God. That is, that is not what God has called us to do. Now, should we stand for righteousness? Absolutely. Should we vote for righteousness? Absolutely. But friends, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not a physical struggle that's here. And it's not a legal struggle here. It's not a political struggle. Our struggle that God has put us in is a spiritual struggle. And the way that we see God wins a spiritual struggle when we look at the New Testament is that we see not a culture war, but we see a spiritual war. And that God's people are called to be different and we're not only called to say, come and see, but we're called to go and tell about a Savior and what his love has done to redeem us. So what this message does mean, fill this in, what this message does mean, what this, what this title does mean is that true Christian families fight, fill this in, for faithfulness to God. That's what we're called to do. We're called to fight to be faithful. 
And why? Because we live in a fallen world that works against that. We're going to talk about the other barriers to that, but we have to fight for faithfulness. That's a good phrase for you to think of in your mind and in your heart. It is a fight to be faithful. The second one I want you to see here is that Christian families fight against the schemes of the devil, against the schemes of Satan. Satan, we, we see this throughout the scripture. We see this in the Old Testament, and we see this in the New Testament, that Satan wars against all that is holy, righteous, just, and good. He comes against that, and we are called to stand against the schemes of the evil one as God's faithful children in a fallen world. You see, many who call themselves Christians, fill this in, don't even realize that they are in a war. Many people who call themselves Christians don't even realize that they're in a war. Well, God's people have always been in a war against a fallen world. In fact, in Nehemiah 4, 14, it was actually a physical battle. They were sent back by God to re-inhabit Jerusalem, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and while that they were there, called by God to be his people in that special city at that special time, they were at war. And I want us to see from their struggle the picture that God's people indeed have very real struggle. Look at Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14, in the box on the page. It's at the top scripture there. He says, and I looked and arose and saw and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. What does it say after that? Remember the Lord. Can you put a big circle around that? Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And then look at the instruction, the second one. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. We see the reality of God's people called to enter into a war. Now we come to the New Testament where the physical fight is not the picture so much as it is the spiritual fight. And we see in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the apostle Paul is writing to this young preacher, and he says to him, as Paul is at the end of his life, what does he say? Let's read it out loud together. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have what? Okay, so you see that this is a very real struggle. We see the language of war in this. We see the language of sport in this. We see the language that requires discipline and, and grueling effort in this. And notice this is that as the Apostle Paul would write this as he goes on, he says, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all, the, to all who have loved his appearing, his appearing the first time and his appearing the second time. We see this great picture that God has called us to fight the good fight. And then I want you to take your, take your Bible and turn with me to Ephesians. Go to the book of Ephesians. I want you to notice something here about the context of this. This is a powerful thought for us. 
Um, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is about our position in Christ, all that Christ has done for us in saving us, who is, he's changed us and given us a new identity. And then Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6 are about not our position in Christ, but about our practice as believers. So it's, it's who we are and then it's what we do. And I want you to notice that in chapter 4, we see the unity in the body of Christ. In chapter 4, we, we see this new life that we're to walk in. But in chapter 5, we see this calling to, to walk together in love with one another. And then down in verse 22, what do you notice? Wives and husbands. We see this issue of the family unit being dealt with. Wives, in verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then we go down to chapter 6 and verse 1. What is the issue there? Children and parents. And then we, we come to the relationship at work, the idea of slaves and masters. Um, and then... In the context of all of that, and at the end of the book of Ephesians, there is a beautiful, powerful reminder that we are in a war. That as God's followers, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are in a great titanic struggle. And it's not against flesh and blood, but it is against spiritual forces. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 and through 20. Look what it says. Finally, be strong in the Lord. Not in yourself. Be strong in the Lord. And then the strength of what? Of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to do what? Okay, stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now that's talking about the, the places that we do not see, the unseen. In verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor. You see, this is, this is terminology of war. Verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, verse 14, stand, against, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given them by the gospel of peace. Look at verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Notice that, it says in verse 16, in all circumstances, in everything, in everything we do, we are called to look to God, trust in God, believe in God. It says, in all circumstances, Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the, the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit and with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance 
making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And so here we see at the end of this his example to us that he's saying, pray for me, but we also see in this that all through the Gospels, we are called to be faithful to the Gospel and to be proclaiming it to a world that so desperately needs it. So notice this point again in the middle of page one there. Many who call themselves Christians do not even realize that they are in a war. They're kind of floating along down the road um, just kind of thinking about all of their blessed assurance. They're, they're not really thinking about the fact that, that there is a very real enemy who hates the righteousness of God and who hates you walking with God. And so there's not a lot of resistance to the world. They're just kind of moving along, floating along. Whatever trends the world is, is throwing at them are the things that they are, in, that they are participating in. And I want to just say that, number one, many of the ones who do not realize that you're in a war, they are not really even Christians. They don't even really know the message of the Bible. They don't really see the urgency and the depth and the alarm that God's Word gives to us concerning our need to be faithful to Him in a fallen world. In fact, they are seeking more friendship with the world and uh, than, than they realize, and as the James chapter 4 verse 4 says, is that friendship in the world means that you're an enemy with God. Again, these are terms that have to do with war, enemies. Notice this. Number two, some are foolishly living in defeat. Those who do not realize that they're in a war, they are foolishly living in defeat. And we could even put there, perhaps even unknowingly, living in defeat. Because they're floating down the stream of culture, they're floating down the way of the world, not recognizing what all is around them. Now, we've mentioned here already that Christian families, that this title, Healthy Church, is not talking about fighting families that fight with one another. As I was thinking about that, and I knew that when I selected this title, that some of you would think, oh, wow, fighting families. Maybe there's hope for us. We can be a part of a healthy church and you know, because we're a fighting family. Well, this morning I want to challenge that a little bit. I, I, I want to challenge us to see the difference in the way that we ought to fight. We're coming up on the 70th anniversary of the end of the Korean War. Uh, last year was um, the 70th anniversary, or two years ago was the 70th anniversary of the beginning of the Korean War. It lasted three years. So we're coming up on the 70th anniversary of the end of the Korean War. Many of you haven't heard a great deal about the Korean War. In fact, for many years it was called the Korean what? Conflict. It didn't, win, it didn't end um, with one side uh, winning over the other. It ended with an armistice, which basically means just a, a ceasefire. But American troops were there, tanks, everything rolling through Korea, um, helicopters, I mean, all kinds of things, thousands of troops everywhere. Um, 
the, uh, the Koreans and the Chinese and those that were communists um, fighting against with artillery and all kinds of modern methods of war at that time. And there was a coalition of troops. There was a coalition against communism. And the Turks were part of that. Here we see the Turkish flag. The Turks joined in the fight. And it was interesting. They sent a whole battle battalion um, there are thousands of troops, and uh, they, they were well-equipped and well-trained. In fact, they were extremely fierce fighters. They were fighters that nobody else really wanted to come face-to-face -face with. Um, the Turks were often on uh, the right flank of the American army, and the American army said, we feel good about the Turks being there because nobody is coming across that flank. The Turks were wild. Now, what was interesting about the Turks and their fierceness was if the Turks didn't have an enemy to fight, you know what they did? They started fighting with each other. That was a constant problem. The Turks would start killing each other if they weren't killing the, killing the enemy. They would turn on one another. And in fact, there were even military decisions where they said, we've got to occupy the Turks. We've got to keep them aimed at the enemy. Now, that's a fierceness that we see that very often we see this playing out in Christian families. We forget who the enemy really is. Notice here on your outline, and fill this in, Christian families need to realize that they are in a war, and it is not with each other. Very often we are self-defeating by being in a war where we are not focusing on the great enemy at hand, but we are being deceived into thinking that it's the ones in our very own home. You see, Christian families are not to fight against one another, but fill this in, they are to fight for one another. And this is why a husband and a wife are called not to fight against one another, but for one another. If we can begin to see what is happening in the world, if we can begin to see what a fallen world does with God's design and how there's designs and schemes of the evil one and our flesh that resists the holiness of God, that resists the righteous plan of God, if we begin to see that there is an arch enemy called Satan, who wants to defame and destroy all that God has designed, if we be can begin to see that those are the enemy and not your wife, then things can change. Listen to this. Middle schoolers, high schoolers, listen to me that are in this room. Your parents, I promise, are not the enemy. I know sometimes you're convinced they are. But they're really, really not. Now, they're imperfect. They're never going to do it perfectly right. But listen to what God's Word describes and how a wise son, a wise daughter, listens to their father and realizes that as a father watches over his children, as a mother watches over her children, and seeks to guide them in the way that they should go, that that's, that's not a bad thing for you. That's a good thing for you. Sadly, I know that there's some children in this room that would say, I just wish I had a father 
that really would care and watch over. There's some that are here alone. Their parents are not here. And they would long for that. And there's some that have adoptive families that are in this room, that folks in this church have, maybe not legally and officially, maybe so, but, but in, in many cases, it's you've taken on as a young person a, an adult figure, a parental figure that is seeking to help you. And, and for those of you that come from Christian families where mom and dad is there, you ought to take notes from those who are seeking help instead of resenting your mother and your father and their instructions, instead of resenting their parameters for your life, instead of resenting their watching over you for you to begin to see the beauty that they are fighting for you, not against you. Amen? That was kind of weak. Okay. Notice here with me. Christian families need to realize who the enemy, the real enemy is. You see, it's not your family, and it's not lost people. When you come across somebody who doesn't understand the gospel, doesn't know, doesn't know the gospel, don't think of them as an enemy. Think of them as someone whom God may be calling to himself. So we, we don't see the enemy as our family. We don't see the enemy as lost people, but we see the enemy as Satan the world, and by this we mean the ideologies and the values and the schemes of the world, and our own fallen flesh. These are the things that we war against. These are the things that we stand against, that we are called to stand in opposition to. So that bottom statement that is there, if Christians would stop viewing their family members as the opposition and start viewing Satan as the common enemy, your whole family begins to see Satan as the common enemy, then they would speed ahead in maturity and health. So this is, this is something for you to think about, moms and dads. Have you been properly teaching that Satan is a very real adversary that wants to destroy the lives of your children? Have you been teaching them that he is not one to be played with? He's not one to be, to be followed. He's not one to get near. Instead, you, you know, it's, it's, I was thinking about this. I remember Andy Stanley preached a long time ago a message where he was talking about walking wisely. And he made this point, and this is, I hadn't planned to say this, but I'll just share with the, this with you because I, th I think it's very appropriate. He made this point. He said, it's so strange to me how there's the righteousness of God and there's the depravity and the sinfulness of humanity, sinfulness of man and Satan. So righteousness on one side, sinfulness on the other side. And somewhere in there, there's a line between where it goes between that which is sin and that which is not sin. And he said, you know, many Christians have this mentality. Show me where that line is on various issues between righteousness and evil. Show me where the line is, because that's kind of where I want to camp out. And he was, real, he was showing how foolish that is. Why would we want to stay as close to hell as possible and still be okay with God? 
If we can begin to start to think about that in our lives and in how we evaluate all that we do, what we spend our time in, what we pursue, what we read, what we watch, are we, are we trying to get as close to that which is unacceptable because it plays to our flesh? Because it plays to our rebellion? Or do we have the mentality of, oh no, no, I want to get as far away from that stuff as I can and still operate within a fallen world. I want to be on the side of God in all of these things. Purity and clarity and, and that which is filled with faith instead of that which is filled with the flesh. I think that's a good challenge for us. And I just want to encourage you that, that the rewards of running on God's side, the rewards of running near to God with your life far outweigh the quote-unquote that your mind might think of, of a reward of staying close to sin. In fact, we never realize just how dangerous that really is, usually until it's too late. Let's turn the page, go to the next one here. Page two. When Christian families realize that they have a common enemy in Satan, they are far more likely to stop fighting one another and start making real progress in what really matters. I just want to say to you that there are families in this church that I am I'm just amazed at how they understand this. There are some families in this church, and one of them... Um, the father is today sitting at Memorial Hospital where he is in the final stages of his struggle with cancer, and he has understood this. Billy has clearly understood that the common enemy against his family, against his wife, and against his children is Satan. Now, has Billy, is Billy perfect in every way? No, no, no. Billy's a human, just like you and me. But I, I've been thinking about his life. I've been thinking about him, spending a lot of time with him uh, this week. I've been able to go to the hospital and just sit and talk for a long period of time with him. And I'm just amazed at how he's kingdom-minded. And, you know, nothing like a great struggle with health to cause you to become more kingdom-minded. But listen, friends, we, when we begin to see the battle clearly and we begin to see the common enemy of Satan and all that he is seeking to destroy of the image and the glory of God in our lives, it makes us not want to just get close to that line and stay there. It shows the stupidity of that. In fact, it shows the lack of love for Christ that cause us to think that way. Because then we come to love the world more than we love Christ. Notice this and fill it in. Just remember, every time you fight with a family member, you're doing two things. Every time you fight with a family member, you're doing two things. Number one, you are naively playing into Satan's deception and destruction. Um, and I say naively because you may not realize how much you are falling into his deception and his destruction. And number two, you are foolishly robbing yourself of God's blessings and spiritual victory. 
So it's, it really doesn't make sense for you to fight against your parents. It doesn't make sense for you to fight against your wife. It doesn't make sense for you to fight against um, those that are there. And, you know, we can apply this as well to your church family. It's kind of, you know, maybe your nuclear family is not really a problem, or maybe you're single and don't really have that. But there are some Christians who go along and they got to fight with somebody. They're kind of like the Turks. If you're Turkish, I don't mean to hurt your feelings. <laughs> I think y'all understand. But the picture is this, is that we're, we're, not, we're not called to, to live in a constant turmoil when we begin to see the beauty of harmony and relationship, what God has designed, and, and as we submit to that, and that's really hard for a middle schooler, high schooler, sometimes a college student to do. I, I know because not only I was there, I still am there. It's hard to submit to that. There's sometimes even when my dad now begins to share with me wisdom and I feel this little thing go inside of me, you know, and I have to remind myself, no, listen to your father. He often speaks wisdom to you. Listen, listen to what he is saying. This is what a wise man will do. So, so notice here, we, we, we don't want to naively play into Satan's deception, and we don't want to foolishly rob ourselves of, of losing God's blessings. No, listen, young to old in this room this morning, we are always blessed by being near to God, and near to God in our family, for our family to be actively fighting the right enemies. Notice this, Christians often fight the wrong battles and the wrong enemies. We get caught up in things that we have not been called to fight, and sometimes we get caught up in fighting those wrong enemies. Instead, notice here, families must be wise, fill this in, to the ways of God. God has called you to be wise to his ways, that you would know his ways. How do you know his ways? Look what it says in Psalm 119, 105. In fact, would you read Psalm 119, 105 with me? Look what it says. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Circle your word. You see, if you want to know what God's plan is, you have to be in his word. His word will speak to you. He, his word will show you all that is good and right and holy and just and true. Look at Psalm 16, verse 11. You will make known to me, the underline it, the path of life. And then notice the blessings here. In your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Here's the picture. In his right hand, he has the blessings that you need. And even the pleasures that your heart longs for. He can give them to you. And they're eternal. So why do we keep going to that which is temporary? Watching the dumb show that's attacking God's values in your heart will ultimately leave you empty. It may leave you intrigued for a moment, and it may occupy your time for the instant, but it will ultimately leave you hungry and thirsty, perhaps sick at your stomach spiritually. Notice Psalm 25 and verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. And then therefore, what does he do? 
he instructs sinners in the way. And I, I am thankful for that because I'm a sinner. And I am thankful that he is the one who instructs me in how not to walk in sin, but instructs me in the way. And what is the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so why would we seek to walk in the way of the world when God has called us to walk in his ways? So how do we fight the right battles? How do we fight the right enemies? We stay in knowledge of God's word. And so the second one here is families must be wise not only to the ways of God, but also to the ways of Satan. We need to be wise to the ways of Satan. This is the reason that Screw Tape Letters was written by C.S. Lewis. He would write this to, based somewhat loosely upon scripture, he's giving a fictional idea of, are you aware of how Satan schemes to deceive you and distract you? Even Frank Peretti from this present darkness and various others through the years that have sought to help us remember what the scripture says, realize what the scripture says about the satanic deception. So here's the picture. Satan showed up in the Garden of Eden with a lie. He showed up with a lie. And you need to understand that that's what he does. He lies. That's the only thing he can do. He is the father of lies. Notice here, you need to look for the lie. You need to look for the lie all the time. Because that's what Satan does. And the only way you can properly look for the lie is to know what the truth is that is the opposite of the lie. The third thing that we must see that families do is families must be wise to the ways of the world. This is the values of the world. This is the way everybody is going. And this is that picture of where we see in Scripture that in Jesus is speaking, he's speaking of himself about salvation, but we see that it applies to all of our life and that there is a narrow way. There is a narrow way that honors Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13. Look what it says. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it by it are what? Are many. For the gate is what? Verse 14, narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are what? Are few. My friends, Jesus said, I'm the door. Enter by the door. Come and follow me. Come walk in my way. Everybody else may be doing it, and that's a pretty good sign that you shouldn't because the world doesn't know the way of God. So um, kind of as we start to wrap up here, I want to go into two sections very quickly that give you some real help in knowing what to do. Christians need to work smarter in their sanctification process. This means that in your family life, in your home life, I want to challenge you to work smarter. Sometimes Satan has either deceived us or our discipleship hasn't been very good, our view hasn't been very good. You see, cutting worldliness out of your life is important. Cutting worldliness out of your life is important, but I'm going to jump ahead to the next one. Developing spiritual habits into your life is more important. You need to cut worldliness, but you also need to develop spiritual habits. That is even more important, and we're going to look at that in just a minute. Let's talk about cutting worldliness out of your life. 
This is important. You see, your entertainment, this is one of the key ways in which the world deceives us. This is one of the key ways in which Satan deceives us. He plays upon our entertainment. I read a piece uh, this, this week um, kind of evaluating reality TV shows. And this person in secular culture, this person from Hollywood in secular culture is looking at what is being put out on Netflix and Prime Video and all of these other means to get shows out there. This secular person is going, this is insane. This is the suicide of our society. And they're saying, not only are the shows ultra stupid, but listen to this. Millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions watch them. So this is a great commentary on where we are as a society, that we're watching more and more and more mindlessness. But it's not entirely mindless because there's an agenda behind it. In fact, the agenda gets woven into it. And it's not just the lava thing. You guys ever heard of lava? You know, the floor is lava. You got to jump around on the furniture, you know. I remember playing it. I remember breaking stuff. I remember getting spankings. I mean, I, I, I remember it. Um, but I mean, when, when, we, when we start obsessing about all of these, these mindless things, whether it's from Hollywood or whether it's from New York or whether it's from Tokyo or whether it's from you know, wherever it is on the planet, and we, and we see an increasing dissipation of our, what is dissipation? It's like steam going into the air and, and, and just turning into nothing, completely dissipating. We start to see that this is very, very different than the way of God. And our entertainment begins to take all of our time, and it, and it also subtly, steadily tears away at the values of God. So the more people that you see commit adultery in storylines, the more people you see just sleep together, just basic good old fornication, the more you see, how about this, the name of the Lord used in vain, you know, isn't it, 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 should, it should strike you strange that they say Jesus Christ. Why don't they say Muhammad? They don't do that. They don't say Confucius. I mean, they don't say George Washington. They don't say Barney Fife. They say Jesus Christ. And you know what's really strange about that? I've lived in a lot of different countries. And I've been around people in other countries. And I've heard people in the streets and in government offices and in restaurants and in businesses. And it's really funny. It, it, or it's not funny. It, it's really tragic that I can be listening to Arabic or I can be listening to French and I can be listening to everything. And you know what I hear in the midst of the conversation? Jesus Christ. Or I'll hear God damn. In English, in the midst of their French or their Arabic or in the midst of their whatever it is, 
So is this not the, the world's satanic deception of a cry out against a holy God? I mean, can you not see just in that example alone that the world rages against God? Chooses the Messiah of the world, the only hope for salvation, to be the point of curse. And, the, and we even see in the, in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And yet, that's what we see. I can bring it home to people who here in this society, maybe even people in this room, that commonly say, my God, and they're not in prayer. Let me tell you that every time you say, my God, or oh my God, that you are taking the name of God and you're turning it into a profane, common expression. And that's exactly what he said not to do. We, a Christian should never say, oh my God, ever. And if you do, you should get down on your face and ask for God's forgiveness. Much less anything else along these lines. I bring these examples up to challenge you to see the attack and the ways of the world that are upon us that comes through our entertainment. It comes through these things. Um, you, you see, it could be also not just your entertainment, but your time usage. And, you know, I, I have to work on this all the time. I, I have to be careful about this all the time. What about this one? Your morality. Your morality. This is your own sexual morality. Are you a Christian or not in the way that you relate to others in the way that you have your mind and your heart set upon the things of God or not on the things of God? Do you distort those things? So cutting worldliness out of your life is important, but developing spiritual habits into your life is even more important. So fill in the word more and then circle it. I want you to get this point. You can try all the time to cut things out, but if you're not putting things in, you'll never succeed. Here's what you need to see. And lately, as pastors, we've been convicted that we need to continue to preach on and speak about real spiritual disciplines more and more and more because that's what Sheridan Hills needs. You need to be working out in your life more Bible time more knowledge of Scripture, you need to be spending more time in prayer, you need to be spending more time serving others. Notice these, developing spiritual habits into your life is more important. Scripture reading and discussion as a family. You want to see your family do something, a good turn? Read the Bible together and talk about it. You say, but that means we couldn't watch our show or we couldn't play our video games or we couldn't do it. Well, yeah, maybe or maybe just less of that, and, and, and hopefully it's not antithetical to Scripture, but how about prayer as a family? Does your family pray together? Dad, you can lead your family to pray together. I mean, you, you don't have to pray like Billy Graham or like Patrick Lacuti or something, you know. You, you can pray where you are. Prayer may be simple at first. That's fine. But teach your family. And the younger you are, 
The younger your family is, listen to me, it is so much easier if you start these habits when you are young, young marrieds and young parents. Outreach as a family, deciding we want to, as a family, obey the Great Commission, that we actually care for those people that are around us. This means that your family is strategizing about how to reach out and maybe even, as we see here, serving others as a family. Fill that in, serving others. When you serve others, you are opening the door for the gospel and you're teaching your children not to be selfish. How about this? Hospitality as a family. We just preached on that one. Um, that hospitality is a very, very important. So I want you to see that you can work real hard at cutting things out, but if you'll add things in, it gives you the strength that you need to remain true to walking away from the wicked things of the world. Now, these two points go to the box, and they all point to the box on the bottom of the page. I want you to see this, that sins of omission lead to sins of commission. Do you, do you understand what I mean by that? Sins of omission. If you omit doing what you should do, like spending time with the Lord, like coming and worshiping with God's people, if you omit those things, then you are mo more likely to commit sins in your life. So when you back off on your quiet time, when you back off on personal worship, when you back off on corporate worship, you are far more likely to do the things that you don't wanna do and that you shouldn't do, the things that are dishonoring to God. So the more that you do the things that you should do, the less you will do the things that you shouldn't do. So the point here is, is that when you fail to do what you should do, you usually will not fail to do what you shouldn't do. We fall into more sin when we don't do the things that we know to do. You see, this is true for the individual, your own individual life, and this is true for your family. If your family is so bu busy doing what they should do, they won't have as much time to do what they shouldn't do. Um, and quite honestly, I mean, I, that's why I'm so blessed by certain families in our church that are very busy doing the things that they should do, and there's not as much time to do the things that they shouldn't do. So what should we fight for? Let's go to the next page. What should we fight for? Very quickly. Number one, you should fight for truth. Satan fights against truth. And one of the greatest and most important weapons that you have um, is the Word of God. It is the sword of the Spirit. It is that which informs your mind and your heart about what is true and what is right. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5, and I'm going to ask you if we would please read this out loud together and see what this is saying about truth and error, okay? Truth and things that are not true. Look what it says, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, let's read together. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. You see, you want to control your mind for the truth and in the truth. This is what you should do. This is fighting smart. Look at the next one. Fight for tenderness. <laughs> It's kind of a funny juxtaposition there. You want to fight for tender. I want you to think about the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus could go clear out the temple. 
the Lord Jesus could get in the face of Pharisees and Sadducees. The Lord Jesus could do all of those things, but the Lord Jesus could be beautifully, gloriously tender. Tender toward the Father, tender toward those who were in need, tender toward those whom he loves. Look what it says here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all what? Malice. That's, that's, that's malintention. That, that's poor intention. That is an evil intention. Instead, let's read it out loud together. Look at verse 32. Here it is. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the mindset of heart. And can you imagine your family? Your family is fighting for truth. Your family is fighting for tenderness. Listen, the world wants your family to shred each other. The world wants you to learn how to really fight with your brother or your sister or your mother or your son. The, the world wants you to fight and not be tender. It's maximum destruction. But that's not at all the heart of God. When we learn to be tender with one another, tender-hearted with one another, that means it's coming from your heart that you actually love that which is right and holy and true. Notice the third one. We fight for grace. We fight for grace. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The world doesn't want to be gracious. God calls us to be gracious. We fight for peace. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Look what it says. F strive for peace with who? With everyone. <laughs> That's the hard part, right? Well, I like to have peace with the people I like. Well, what about the people I don't like? Strive to have peace with everyone. And then look at the next part of that verse for the next one. Fight for not only peace, but fight for holiness. That same verse says, strive for peace with everyone and for, strive also for this, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So this is the picture that you are called to not be unholy, you are called to be holy. And if you are not holy, you will not see God. Now, how do we first and foremost become holy? We come, become holy through Jesus Christ. And the picture is, is that he comes and he washes us clean through conversion to him and faith in him. But after that has happened, if that has really happened, we are going to go on and grow in holiness. If we do not go on and grow in holiness, then we do not know him. So we fight for holiness. If you have a mindset of wanting to camp out on the line of sin, you may need to look and see whether or not you really know God. The last one here I've felt convicted to share is fight for joy. John Piper talks a lot about this, and I love it. He has a book entitled Fight for Joy. But Ecclesiastes chapter 5, or chapter 8 and verse 15, look what it says. And I commend joy, 
For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and to drink and to be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. You know, part of what God's intention for you is to find joy. And now we're not talking about finding joy merely in eating and drinking. All of those things are vapors that pass away. Ultimately, we see, though, that the joy that God gives us is the joy of being right with him. It's his joy. Notice Ecclesiastes 9 in verse 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Now, that's not talking about as opposed to the wife that you don't love. It's just making the safe. We're not talking about polygamy here. Enjoy life, and the point is, with the wife whom you love. You know, this is, this is the picture that God has designed for the family, that we would enjoy life with our family. We would enjoy life with these, that we would fight for the joy. You see, the command is made because it's possible that you would not be obeying that command. You would not be enjoying life with your family. God has called us to live separately from the world. He's called us to live differently from the world. You must realize that you are in a war, that the world is against the principles and the truths that will get you to heaven. It is against the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world is against that. Christian families are called to fight for the truth, to fight for tenderness, grace, peace, holiness, joy, and all that the gospel encompasses. The final instructions that I think are good for us to hear as we go into family camp this week is this. From 1 Corinthians, and this is the end of 1 Corinthians, so this is the the very end of the book, last few verses, we see this command. So at the very end of 1 Corinthians, look what he says, be watchful, Fill it in. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. He's saying be tough. This isn't, this isn't a, a, a small game. This requires maximum effort. No wimps here. He's saying be strong. Let all that you do, and he ends it with this. This is so beautiful. Let all that you do be done in love. It doesn't say let all that you be, do be done in terror against the enemy. He says, let all that you do be done in love. Can you say that to your family, that all that we do be done in love? Can we say that to our church? Can we say that to the world that is around us? Let's stand together for prayer this morning. Father in heaven, may we have true, godly, holy, loving fighting families. May we have families that know who the true enemies are, and may we have families that know how to respond to those true enemies. May we allow your word to guide our values and guide our actions in the way that we live our lives. Father, I pray that you would strengthen fathers in this room today to lead their families to be a fighting family for the truth. To be families of prayer 
to be families of love and grace, to be families that see the enemy for who he is and that seek to be true to all that you have said to be true to. Lord, I pray that you would help us with this. I pray that there would be moms, wives in this room that want to do all they can to help their family to be a fighting family for the truth of God. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be young people that see the foolishness of raging against that which is holy and true, that we would say, no, I want to embrace the truth, not fight against it. I want to know that and realize that in my heart I may resist this in my flesh, but Lord, you've called me to bring that in submission to you and to my parents. So Lord, I pray that this message would help our young people to say, I I, I want to stop fighting against what is holy and true and what is right. I want to embrace in every way that which is good. So Lord, I pray that we'd be a church that's filled with healthy families and that that would make us a healthy church. Thank you for Jesus who went to the cross that we may live. And Lord, I pray that we would, as we've already sung today, that we would redeem, that that we would rejoice in the Redeemer and all that he has done to make us his. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.